Titus chapter 2, 1 through 3. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to too much wine, and they are to teach what is good. If you have a Bible, go ahead and grab it and turn to the book of Titus. Why don't I pray for our time and, and, uh, and then we'll get started. Uh, Lord, thank you so much for uh, just another opportunity to gather uh, together uh, on this day, on Sunday, on the Lord's Day, to celebrate uh, the good news of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection and the very real implications that has for us. And if there's anyone here that is feeling uh, just restless and in need of peace, hopeless longing for hope, ashamed longing for renewal and forgiveness, I pray, Lord, that we would just find joy and hope in the gospel. Have a ready spirit to hear what you might have for us in your word this morning. Pray. Amen. Uh, so Titus uh, chapter 2, uh, we've turned the corner now uh, from the end of chapter 1 going now into chapter uh, 2, and we're going to be walking through just the first few uh, verses there. Now to begin, uh, I just want to state something that many of you know that one of my favorite food groups is pizza, <laughs> right? Amen. Thank you, Wolf. One of my favorite food groups is pizza. The problem is that the older that I get, the more my body reacts to all things dairy, right? That's, that's my thorn in the flesh. Uh, that is my curse. Now, I'm not like 100% dairy-free. Like, like we're actually serving pizza and salad later tonight at the prayer gathering. Hope to see many of you guys there, but at the prayer gathering, we're going to be serving pizza and salad, and I plan to partake in both. Um, but uh, I'll, 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 so like, I'm not like 100% dairy-free. Like, I'll have a little dairy here, a little bread here and there, uh, but if I have too much of those things, like many of us, uh, I start to feel gross, right? <laughs> and I start to feel bloaty. Uh, and a couple months back, couple months back, I discovered that Pizza Press has dairy-free cheese, which I know sounds disgusting, but it's amazing. No, yeah, exactly. Thank you, Trevor. It is amazing. It's really good, and it's, it's the best thing ever. I can have pizza, like no shame, no risk. It's no shame, no risk cheese uh, made for someone like me, and I just, I feel actually good. Like, I feel great after eating it, I don't get like all gross and, and bloaty. And uh, the reason I mention any of that is because we have that general understanding that that's kind of how our bodies work, right? Like a few years ago when my wife and I tried this that whole 30 thing, you guys remember that? You got to eat like food that's cooked a certain kind of way. You can only have certain kinds of spices. You can have some fruits. You had to avoid sugar, avoid alcohol, avoid complex carbs. You could have any raw vegetable you want. Uh, and so basically, and for 30 days, you had to commit to this. So it was like 30 days of no fun, but you get used to it. And you actually feel like pretty good because of it, right? Because that's generally how it works. If you put healthy stuff into your body, it will transform you. 
You will be healthier. Generally speaking, we all know this, that eating healthy foods contributes to living a healthy life. And here, as we turn the corner into Titus chapter 2, what we see is Paul is going to walk us through a similar principle in the Scriptures. In the same way that healthy eating contributes to healthy living, Paul is going to unpack this idea that healthy disciples of Jesus are those who consume a healthy diet of doctrine. Consume healthy doctrine. And and what we're going to see is that this isn't a fad diet. This isn't like a 30-day deal or a 40-day spiritual journey. What we're talking about is this regular, normal, everyday way of consuming and living that God desires for the Christian. That the Lord is more considered about our spiritual health over the long haul than He is even our, 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 our physical health. He's primarily concerned about our spiritual health over the long haul. And that's what's at stake here. And so just a quick recap. Remember, Paul is writing to one of his protégés, Titus. Titus is a church planter. He's overseeing a group of churches on the island of Crete. Before Paul and Titus landed on this island, hit the shore, there was no gospel presence there. And they went around preaching the gospel, starting little home groups, starting new churches. And then Paul takes off to continue his ministry elsewhere to keep spreading the gospel through the ancient Near East. Uh, But he leaves Titus behind, specifically with the task, so that Titus can focus on investing time and resources and relationships and teaching into these new baby Christians on the island of Crete. And so... Titus is a really timely book for us as a brand new church, as a relatively new church, because it is the only book in all the New Testament that's actually geared towards new churches. That's written for the context of church planting. And so last uh, in the last couple of weeks, we said we saw how like one of the the first two tasks that Paul uh, gives to Titus is to first like start to train and appoint healthy leaders in the church, and then last week we saw that he he then. Uh, encourage uh, Titus to confront the unhealthy leaders of the church. And then now he rounds the corner into chapter 2, and that's where we find ourselves today. And the first thing we see in our text in chapter 2, verse 1, is that healthy doctrine produces a life of whole devotion. That's our first point. Healthy doctrine produces whole devotion. Read verse 1 with me. He says, but as for you... As for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. And so he begins chapter 2 with this phrase, but as for you. Now remember, he says that because he's contrasting Titus now with those that we learned about last week. Those who taught unsound doctrine, those who were false teachers, those he describes in verses 10 through 16 as as those who don't live under the authority of the scriptures, those who talk big about Jesus, but their hearts are actually far from him. They profess, he says in verse 16, to know God with their words, but they actually deny him with their works, and they're unfit for any real good and meaningful work. 
And he says here in verse 1 now, chapter 2, but as for you, as for you, Titus, don't be like them, but as for you, be useful, be fit for the church by speaking and teaching, he says, what accords with sound doctrine. Now, what does he mean by sound doctrine? Right, like sometimes we hear words like doctrine or theology, and we might have sort of like this this dry, archaic idea of of of, of what he's talking about here. But really, sound doctrine is uh, to use a, a, de- a definition I got from Bobby uh, Jameson, a pastor in D.C. He says sound doctrine is a summary of the Bible's teaching that is both faithful to the Bible, but also useful for life. That's a basic summary, sort of definition of what we mean by sound doctrine. It's just a summary of what the Bible teaches that is faithful to what it actually says, but also useful and practical for daily living. You see, sound doctrine, healthy doctrine, isn't just when we, it's not when we get to impose our ideas on the Bible. It's when we take the Bible as God's word and study what it says, what it has to say about God himself and about this area of our life and about that area of our life. Sound doctrine is about teaching from the Bible that is true and that's actually applied to how we live. See, that word sound basically means healthy, healthy doctrine. And see, that's what makes doctrine healthy is that it's got to be right and true and pure, but it's also got to be applied and lived out. That's sort of the big banner over our teaching series through Titus. We're calling it Grace Lived Out because it's this idea that when you truly encounter the transforming grace of God in your life, it changes everything. It starts to transform everything about you, and you begin to live it out. And there's a clue for what this looks like in the language of verse 1 when he says, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Teach what accords with sound doctrine. He's saying, don't just teach the information of sound doctrine. Teach what accords with it, what flows from it. Teach not just right things, but teach also what it looks like to believe those right things. Teach what it looks like to live as though Jesus is true and good and beautiful. He's not the the the, the word for this. Uh, uh, there, and there, there's this uh, other clue in how important this is to him. And that that word to teach is this Greek word lale. Lale, which which is 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 more the kind of uh, teaching that's like like just having a, a chat, like a regular talk. It's not the word for preaching or for didactic teaching. Uh, he already covered that in ver- in chapter one, verse nine, when he told Titus to give instruction in sound doctrine. But here he's using a different Greek word. He's not talking about didactic instruction. He's talking about just talking, like over over a coffee table or over a dinner table. Or like the foyer outside of the church. It's just to talk. It's this picture of like talking shop. Just everyday conversation about the regular stuff of life and how the gospel intersects us and meets us every day. Now why does this matter? 
Why does that point matter? It's because he's saying this idea of sound doctrine is not just for the pulpit. It's not just for the Sunday gathering. We need sound doctrine in everyday Christian living. There should be an element of following Jesus with our lives that, that what is preached up, up, up here and taught in home groups actually makes its way into your heart and begins to spill out into your life. It's this idea that belief should spill out into behavior, that our creeds should spill out into our conduct, that healthy doctrine should stir up in us this whole life devotion. That is Paul's heart and prayer for the Christians of Crete. That they just wouldn't know this new stuff about Jesus, but that it would actually burrow its way, that information would burrow its way into their hearts and actually produce fruit in their lives. That was Paul's heart for them. That was Titus's heart for the new Christians in Crete. And, and that's my heart and prayer for each one of us. That we would have this collective appetite, this hunger for what the Bible calls sound doctrine, this habitual diet of healthy doctrine, and, and for that doctrine to produce in us whole devotion. You see, we are to be set apart by God with our healthy doctrine, but we're also to be sent into the world with a mission and with a purpose to bring glory to God and to, good, to do good to our neighbors. The church isn't supposed to be a refuge from the world, but a refuge for the world. You hear us talk from time to time that we want to be the kind of church, the kind of disciples that live for God's glory, but also for the good of others. It's not us versus them, it's us for them. And that requires that we are marked by the gospel and all that we are, that we are truly transformed by the hope and grace of Jesus from the inside out. If we want to make a meaningful difference for the glory of God and the good of others, then we need healthy lives that flow from healthy doctrine. If we want to make a meaningful, a lasting, an eternal difference for the glory of God and the good of others, then we need healthy lives that flow from healthy doctrine. And Paul is then going to address now for the next several verses uh, a few different groups of disciples. He's going to actually unpack what it looks like to be a healthy disciple that is living a healthy life in light of healthy doctrine. Paul's going to unpack now for the next several verses uh, what that looks like in a few different groups of disciples, giving specific instruction for what that looks like in different groups of people. 
And that's an important principle because what it shows is that the way that this fleshes out might look different based on uh, who you are and your stage of life and your gender and whether you're single or whether you're married and just whatever, wherever God has you, that might look different. And so Paul addresses a few different groups to sort of flesh out, hey, here's what this looks like for older men. Here's what this looks like for older women. Here's what this looks like for younger men. Here's what this looks like for younger women. And then he, he, he talks later on about bond servants. Uh, and so we're going to unpack those different groups and how the gospel in, uh, uh, transforms how you live if you're part of those different, different groups. Uh, but we're going to split this into two weeks. So we're going to go through the first half this week, talking about older men and older women. And we're going to talk about the second half uh, next week. But before we get into, into the next few verses, just by way of preface, uh, you might be sitting here this morning saying, saying like, okay, well, when we talk about older men and uh, older women, like, like I, if I'm a younger man or younger woman, like you, you might be, be ch- uh, uh, tempted to sort of like check out at that point, right? And so my urging to you is not to do that because there's two ways that these phrases are used in this passage. Being an older man or an older woman is primarily talking about an older age, like specifically people in like their 50s and 60s and up. But it's also talking about those who are growing in the faith and have a meaningful influence of those younger Christians around them. And so if you're a younger believer, you should listen to these next few verses through the lens of two things. One, this is what God is calling me to aspire to one day. As I grow old, as I mature in my years, this is what he is aspiring me to grow towards one day in these virtues. But the other lens, if you're a young person this morning, is for you to say, man, in some sense, I have influence and an impact on people around me, on the younger people or younger Christians who are looking up to me. And so these things, in some sense, should be true about me as well, as somebody who does have authority, who does have influence. Now, with that said, I want to also acknowledge some cultural differences between how we view youth and old age. You see, between uh, there's some cultural differences, some vast cultural differences between Paul and Titus's culture in the ancient Near East first century and our culture today. Because in our culture today, we tend to prize youth and despise old age. Like the first time you didn't get carted at a restaurant, you're kind of bummed out, right? When people ask how old you are, the older you get, a little part of yourself dies inside, right? But you need to know that in many other cultures, even today, and in every culture previously, humans have generally prized moving forward and up in age and in years. And it was actually considered a gift, a trophy of sorts, something honorable to get old. People looked up to older people because of their wisdom and their experience, and they saw a danger 
in youth. And so with that said, I want us to transition now into our next two points. We're going to first talk about a specific word for older men, and then we're going to transition to a specific word that Paul gives pertaining to older women. So number two, a word specifically to older men. We see this word starting in verse 2. When Paul says older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Now in verse 2 here, Paul is speaking directly to those older men, those who are in their 50s and up, who maybe have families that are older now. Maybe they have multiple generations of families under them. Uh, This might be like the empty nesters or retired people like today. And now you might not again be an older man this morning but I want you to see how the gospel fleshes out for older men so that you know one how to pray for the older men in your life the older Christian men and if you're a younger man you also know just what you should aspire to one day just a brief word to those of you who are older men to both of you (laughs) I want to say I want you to see that in this verse Paul wants you to care about growth in character in old age and not just your youth, not just when you're younger. You see, you might think that personal growth and character is something that you really need to focus on when you're young and you have a career and you have this family, a wife to love and kids to raise that look up to you. But then when the kids are out of the house and you're retired, you can sort of like mellow out on that, on, on, on how, how much you pursue that. Mellow out on the level that you pursue godliness. But Paul wants old men to care about character and godliness and holiness in old age as well. It's important to recognize that there's really like, if you think about it, sort of two archetypical men that generally speaking, our culture says that all men should try to aspire to and be like one day. Culturally speaking, there's two kinds of men that, 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 that we're told like, hey, if you're a man, you should, you're going to, you, you, you've made it, you've arrived if you're one of these two kinds of guy. Like one is like the Dos Equis guy, right? Most interesting man in the world, right? That's a Dos Equis, right? The most interesting man in the world. Um, that's, the, that's the dream for like a lot of guys. This old Casanova sort of chilling on the beach with no care in the world and no real meaningful responsibilities. The other option, according to the culture, is to be like this grumpy old man like Carl and Up right? And Pixar's up. Or like Mr. Scrooge in Tar- Charles Dickens' famous play where you, you sort of did your time, you, you earned your place at the table, and so now you get to sit on your high horse judging all the snowflakes who don't know what, what it's like to really live, right? Those are sort of the two ideals that, that is kind of imposed on us by culture. But when you look at what Paul says about the older men here, he paints this picture of a man who provides more substance than the first type of guy, the Dos Equis guy, and more meaning than the second guy, the grumpy old man. He says, first in verse 2, that older men should be sober-minded. Sober-minded. Now this word here means not influenced by outside pressures. Not extravagant, but moderate. 
Now, that word moderate, some of us, like, we don't like that because it sounds like a boring word, right? But it's not the type of moderate that can be described uh, here in the original Greek as, like, boring or safe. But it's the type of moderate that means being measured and being sure. It's a picture of a man who isn't in excess, who isn't influenced easily from the outside, but is an influence of others around him. He's not easily swayed by fads or by the opinions of the people around him or by the lure of strong drink or pretty women. He's sober-minded. He's learned the cost through the years that he's lived. He's learned the cost of indulging in yourself, of satisfying your own desires, and of pursuing selfish ambitions. And he's learned to think rationally about all of that, to look back and see where are the times and pursuits in his life where he wasted time and energy, and what are the things that he did, the people he invested time with, the tasks that he accomplished that actually matter, that actually hold eternal weight and value. He's moderate, sober-minded in that sense of the word. He's also described as someone who is dignified, Someone who is dignified. Now that word, dignified, means venerated and worthy of respect. And again, venerated is one of those words that, that just kind of uh, might kind of have a weird taste in some of our mouths. Like we might, sometimes we hear the word venerated and, and we, we think of this uh, sort of dry, prudish person. But that's not what this is. This isn't someone who doesn't know how to have fun. This isn't someone who's always so serious like Christian Bale's Batman. It means while you don't have to take yourself too seriously, you know you don't have to take yourself too seriously, but you still do take the things of God and the teachings of his word seriously. You can have both. You cannot take yourself seriously and take the Lord seriously. And it's this picture of a man who has lived life, who's seen a lot and learned enough to know that the things concerning life and death are serious things. They matter. They echo through eternity. This is a man who's lived long enough to know that fleeting pleasures don't last, but that the pleasures of God do. They've lived long enough to have experienced hard things in life. Like what it's like to be lacking. What it's like to feel the sting of betrayal. What it's like to lose a loved one too soon. And they've learned in light of all that what it means to have this sort of God-informed perspective of all those ups and downs of life. And because of that, they can say with authority, brothers and sisters, even though today is hard or difficult for you, God is still faithful. Even though this season of life is confusing and you don't understand why this happened to you or to the people that you love, Jesus is still worth following. You can still trust him. It's the kind of man who's lived through enough ups and downs, has enough maturity and steadfastness and dignity in his spiritual walk that he can say those things to the brothers and sisters around him with meaningful authority. 
there's this authority that this man carries, not because of some office that he holds or some title that he wears, but it's because of the content of his character. Men, the world needs more men like that. We need, this church needs more men like that. So men, let's, let's be this kind of man. Let's aspire to be men who are sober-minded, dignified, and self-controlled. He also described, is described as that last one, self-controlled. This is a man who has his passions under control. They have a spiritual discernment that empowers uh, them to, to remain like unconformed to the world, but transformed by a mind that meditates on the scriptures, like Romans 12 tells us. And now these next virtues, and the rest of verse 2, they actually go together. When he says he needs to be sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness, these are sort of like the three cardinal virtues, the three big pillars for Paul in his writing. Like in 1 Corinthians 13, he describes them as faith, hope, and love. In other places, like all throughout 1 Timothy, like we see these three like are always together in Paul's writing. And he says that the, the man of God, that the older man of God needs to be sound in these three things. He needs to be healthy in these three. In faith, meaning that he is rooted in a daily walk with God. In love, which is the greatest commandment that Jesus gave us. He said the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And so he's healthy in love for God and love for others. And he's steadfast. He's steadfast. That word steadfast is a powerful word. And it's actually like in other places that Paul uses this triad, he usually says faith, love, and hope, or faith, hope, and love. But here, he uses the word steadfast in place of the usual hope because he's honing in for older men a particular quality of hope that old men in particular should have. Steadfastness. It's this powerful word, and really, I mean, that's a word we don't use today anymore, right? Like, when was the last time you heard or read the word steadfast? That's because our culture has an aversion to being steadfast. Culture would encourage us to move from one thing to the other to the other, to, to pursue fleeting pleasures, as opposed to being steadfast. Like, you're not going to find a New York Times bestseller like 10 Hot Tips to being steadfast in your life today. But that is the kind of thing that Paul clarifies. This is the kind of hope that an older man should have. It's a steadfast hope. A hope that produces perseverance. That's what it means to be steadfast. You persevere. You are persevering in the hope of the gospel. It means that your faithfulness 
to Jesus isn't dependent on who's around you. It's not dependent on whether your life is going up or on whether your life is going down at every turn and every corner and every up and every down, whether you have plenty or whether you have nothing. You are steadfast. You persevere. You plod. You're faithful day after day after day. It's, it's, it's not this like sexy picture that's exciting and, 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 and there's a lot of like commotion and action it's just this daily plotting like a faithful farmer that just tills the ground every day in and day out much of the christian life most of the christian life is steadfast and the older man paul says gets that this man this man that has all these qualities is a man with real substance to his character a man who is tethered to Christ in all that he does, in faith, in love, in steadfastness. Paul says that's the makings of a real man. That is the real art of manliness. He's the kind of man that you can look to and learn from because he's dependable. He's strong. Forgive my crassness, but a lot of times Paul used crass language specifically when he's talking to men. But this is also the kind of man that has the balls to stand up against his enemy, the devil, and make his life count for something by the grace of God. Things that matter for eternal value. Things that really matter. Things that will really last and echo into eternity. He's a man who is sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and instead, fastness. And then, Paul transitions in verse 3. He gives a word now specifically to older women. Specifically to older women. Now, remember, this, I want you to notice that the same characteristics, many of the same sort of flavor of characteristics of the older men carry also over to the older women. Now, again, this is a group of women that generally speaking are kind of around like 50 and up. They're in that season of life where by the grace of God and the work of the Spirit, they can also be marked by sort of maturity and by godliness. Uh, but it, 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 it's also this sense where, where if you're a young woman here today, you need to recognize that these are the things that you should aspire to as well. These are the things that you can be praying for about the older women in your life. And I want you to notice similarly that the way that Paul speaks of older women here is countercultural to how we talk about women today. Hardly anyone in our culture wants to be classified as an older woman. Right? Like if you refer to some dude as an old man, like, hey, old man, to their face, chances are you mean it like jokingly or in jest, and he's probably going to say something or do something to put your, you in your place as a young man, right? But if you call some lady an old woman to her face, chances are she will put you in your place as a dead man. <laughs> because according to our culture, that's offensive, that's highly offensive. According to culture, women need to hide their age. 
They're told that your age, your wrinkles, your gray hair diminishes your value. But Paul is specifically going against the grain of the culture and he's honoring older women. He's venerating them. He's honoring them. He's showing respect for them. He's describing what they have to offer to others that no one else can and showing what it looks like for a woman to to walk in the ways of the Lord. He says in verse 3, Older women, likewise, in the same way, are to be reverent in behavior. So he's saying in a similar manner, in the same way as with the men, older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good. And we'll stop there with verse 3. Notice there's nothing here about being a cougar <laughs> or doing whatever a woman can do, doing whatever she can, spending whatever money she can to turn back time with her appearance through surgery or creams or hair dye. And to be clear, I'm not knocking the modern use of beauty, cream, and hair dye. But what I am knocking is this cultural assumption underneath all the marketing that women are bombarded with the cultural assumptions underneath all of the narratives that are being told, all of the marketing for those things that says that wrinkles in your skin, folds on your face, and a crown of gray hair is something that a woman should be ashamed of. That is a wicked lie. It is a wicked lie. How about let's let the scriptures define true beauty and womanhood for us. Let's have the scriptures open our minds to the idea that wrinkles can tell the magnificent story of years of faithful work, of family sacrifice, and that is also beautiful. And so Paul unpacks what a beautiful, godly, older woman looks like in character and in virtue. He says first, verse 3, she is to be reverent in behavior. Reverent in behavior. Now, this word in the Greek is a fascinating word. This is the only time it's used in all the New Testament. And it's actually one word. To be reverent in behavior is one word in the Greek. It's hieroprepes. Hieroprepes, which literally means to be priest-like, like a priestess, or to be temple, temple fitting, to be fit to enter the temple. Again, this is the only time this word is ever used. Now you're probably wondering, what the heck does this mean? To be priest-like, to be a priestess, to be temple-fitting? This, this word harkens back, it's a callback to the Old Testament priests that we read about in the Old Covenant, who, where they would enter the temple of God to make an animal sacrifice to God on behalf of God's people as atonement, as a sacrifice for sins. But that priest had to be reverent, had the sacred air to him. 
He was respected in the community. And so Paul is giving a picture of a woman who has those types of marks of reverential behavior. She's a woman who has this air of sacredness about her. There's a spiritual depth to her. She has the type of character that's fitting for someone that has direct access to God, like an Old Testament priest. Think about that. She has the type of character that when you look at the content of your character, you say that is somebody who should fittingly, it would make sense for her to have direct access to God. Her life is marked by godliness and by prayer. She knows the scriptures, and just like the old priest, she represents God in a dignified way to her family and to the people around her. Paul continues, and he says this this older woman is also described as, as somebody who is not a slanderer. Not a slanderer. He's saying godly older women speak truth and not lies. Remember, in Crete, it was a badge of honor to be a liar and a swindler. It was also a popular thing to join in on slandering others. The word for slanderer here, though, is it, it, it's the Greek word diabolos. Diabolos. And what does that word look like, diabolos? Think like Mission Viejo Diablos. Right? Diablos, it's the word for a devil. It's a word given to the devil. It's not a great word, just in case you were wondering. (laughs) A slanderer, a diabolos, is someone who speaks words that attack or tear down. Words that accuse, that cut down and don't build up. Women throughout history and throughout cultures have been specifically prone to this when they're together. When they see another woman who's succeeding, rather than celebrate her, they'll focus on one of her flaws and tear her down in in her own mind or talk about it with others. The reason the devil has the name accuser or slanderer is because that's one of his biggest plays. That is his biggest play. He's an accuser. He whispers lies into the Christian's heart to tear down the way that we see our own worth, the way that we see our own value, to tear down the way that we trust in Christ and relate to him. God hates gossip and slander so much that he uses the language of Scripture here to say, you are being just like the devil when you engage in gossip. Don't be a slanderer. In other words, don't be like a little devil. And then he continues. Paul says she is also described as not a slave to much wine. You'll notice this theme keeps coming up in the scriptures. And we're led to believe that this, this, this having too much wine was probably a big problem in the island of Crete in the culture at the time. It was a popular thing in that culture to be what, what, what Paul calls a slave to wine. 
to feel like you have to have a drink at any waking moment that you have, especially if it, this was the case if you were an older woman, because the idea was if you spent your whole life working and caring for others and laboring and now you're in your old age, it's time for some me time. You earned it, so grab a bottle, pour a glass or five and Paul is saying, look, as someone who's been saved by grace, you don't do that anymore. Enjoy a glass or two for the glory of God. That's totally fine, but don't be a slave to it. Don't be a slave to it. How do you know you're a slave to wine? It's when it starts to impair your judgment. When you're drinking to the point of getting drunk, or when you're in this place where you, you just find, find that you can't not have it, you'll lose your mind if you don't. When you're in that place, then you're no longer consuming wine as a good gift from the Lord. It's consuming you like it's your God. You're a slave to it. Paul says she's not a slave to much wine. And then he continues, lastly, she's described as someone who teaches what is good. She teaches what is good. Now, we're going to get more into what she teaches younger women next week. But this morning, I want you to see the picture that Paul is painting here of an older woman who has the knowledge in her mind and the knowledge of mind, but also the character of life to be able to teach other women. What I love about this phrase teach what is good is that Paul is just talking about the basics of Christian living. Teach what's good. Follow what it means. Teach what it looks like to follow Jesus in the everyday stuff of life. What does that tell us? It tells us that, look, an older woman can be younger in the faith, but she can still model in some sense what it looks like to follow Jesus with maturity of age. You don't have to have a PhD in theology to do good to others in the way that you teach them and are an example to them. It's about being a model of following Jesus to the people around you. Being a model of following Jesus to your daughter or your granddaughter or your life is an example to other women. It's about being a godly example to the younger women in this church. Having a legacy that will echo and carry on generation after generation after generation that brings glory not to yourself but to the God that you love and serve and look in closing in all of these things and all of this and and, and Paul's talking about doctrine leading to devotion and his word to older men and his word to older women and all of this, what we see is that if you want healthy Christians and a healthy church, then you need healthy doctrine. You need healthy doctrine to be taught and you need whole heart devotion to spill out. And look, that's the goal of the church. That's the mission Jesus gave the church in Matthew chapter 28. That's the mission he gave us when he told us to go and make disciples. He didn't tell us to go and make converts. He didn't tell us to go and make have people fill out this check on a connect card. 
that says, I prayed the prayer, he goes a step further. He says, no, go and make disciples. That's the mission we got from Jesus. What's a disciple? A disciple is an apprentice, a follower. Disciples of Jesus are followers of Jesus in the fullest sense of that phrase. And so it's somebody that follows Jesus with the whole of their life. We don't come here, we don't do this church thing just to learn facts and gather some information. We come to have that information transform us by the truth of God's word. And the work of God's word is not done in us until that transformation is taking place. That's the goal. Our goal is not just a fleeting moment experience with Jesus when we're singing our favorite song or listening to our favorite sermon. Our goal is the steadfastness that Paul talks about. Where transformation, real life transformation has taken place and has taken root. So what that means for us as a church is that it's my job when we gather as a church to exegete the word of God, to expose its meaning from the text. It's the Spirit's job to open your heart to the words that we're walking through in the Bible. But it's your job to continue in that work of applying it to your everyday life. It's your job to continue in the work of aspiring and growing in these things. Theologian Kevin Van Hooser writes in his book called Hearers and Doers, which is all about how we shouldn't just be hearers of the word, but doers of it too, to steal a phrase from the book of James. And in that book, Kevin Van Hooser gives this word to pastors. And he says, helping people understand who they are, why they're here, and where they should be going on the journey that is life is perhaps the most important ministry there is. The goal of the church, my role as a pastor, is helping people understand who they are, why they're here, where they should be going on the journey that is life. Van Hooser says that is perhaps the most important ministry there is. I love that quote. I highlighted it and I wrote notes for myself in the margin. But now I want you to take this. We're going to tweak it. I want you to apply it to your own life. I did a little editorial tweak on this verse, and I want to sort of riff on that, or this quote rather, I want to riff on that, and I want you to consider this. Consider this statement. Understanding who I am, why I'm here, and where I should be going on the journey that is life is perhaps the most important thing for me to learn. Understanding who I am, why I'm here, and where I should be going on the journey that is life is perhaps the most important thing for me 
to learn, and to grow in. Why don't you take stock right now of the things that are your greatest priorities? Could you say this statement in good conscience if you're a follower of Jesus this morning? That you understand who you are, why you're here, and where you should be going on the journey that is life, and that is the most important thing for you to have settled. So the question for us now, how do we do that? How do we do that? How do we understand who we are, why we're here, and where should we should be going? How do we learn what we need to know to grow in these virtues and characteristics that we unpacked over the last half hour? How do you do that? The Bible tells us, I'll paraphrase it from John 15, it's by abiding in Jesus. Abiding in Jesus. Jesus describes himself as a vine. He describes us as branches. And he tells us that if we abide in him, like branches abide in, are tethered to, connected to a vine, in the same way that the biological juices flow from vine to branch, from branch to vine, and fruit begins to grow, Jesus says in John 15, when you abide in me and I abide in you, you will bear much fruit. But he says, apart from me, you can do nothing. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Nothing of real eternal significance can be done without abiding in him. He is that great high priest who stood in our place on the cross. He's the high priest who didn't just provide a perfect lamb for the slaughter. He was the lamb for the slaughter. He stood in our place for our sins on the cross. absorbed God's wrath in our place and rose in triumphant victory so that those of us who believe in him by faith can share in that victory. He is that great high priest and he's also the great teacher. The great teacher who taught perfectly sound doctrine. He embodied perfectly sound doctrine. He was the very word of God the great teacher who sent God the Holy Spirit to dwell in us. So those of us today in the 21st century who believe and follow Jesus have the Holy Spirit in us to teach us, to continue to teach us, and to grow us to look more like Him. Thank you for listening to the King's Cross Church Podcast. We'd like to encourage listeners to be part of a local church gathering. If you're ever in the Orange County, California area, we'd love it if you come by and visit on a Sunday morning. For meeting times and locations or any other information about us, please visit kx.church. There's no .com in that, just kx.church. Thanks again for listening.